The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, Spectator's Features Editor. And I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about the covert campaign against field sports, South Africa's new villain, and whether testosterone could be the miracle cure for menopause symptoms. First up, it's a special episode of the edition today because our very own William Moore has written the cover piece on how rural pursuits are being threatened by lawfare from countryside groups. We're also joined by Jonathan Roberts, who leads the external affairs team at the Country, Land and Business Association. So, Will, it's your turn in the firing line today. Can you start by outlining who's on both sides of this covert war that you speak of against the countryside? Yeah, so... What is sort of interesting about it is, as you say, it's a bit of a covert war that's that's going on in contrast to, you know, when there was this big all-out open assault on a field sport, on hunting, 20 years ago uh, during the Blair Premiership. And what's happened since is more of a sort of death by a thousand cuts to field sports, a kind of chipping away a ever-increasing regulatory burden that makes it much harder to participate in field sports. So they are still legal, but are being made increasingly difficult, almost almost impossible in some cases. And there's two, two problems with all these regulations that are being put on top. One is one of execution, uh, and one is about intent. So just to begin with execution, I, I write about my piece about how there was emergency changes to general licensing to the licensing of the release of game birds in special protected areas across the country because of uh, concerns about avian flu. Now, these changes were brought about with no consultation to shooting communities. It's dropped out of the blue and has left a lot of shoots and of gamekeepers and, and it's scrabbling around to try and get the new paperwork. So it's an incredibly clumsy bit of execution on the part of Natural England there. But the other question is one of intent, because you know it's very reasonable to to, to ask, well, what's what is wrong with licensing? Lots of things are licensed. What, why are people complaining about a lot of new regulation? Well, it depends. Is regulation being introduced um, for the sake of proper management, or is it because there is disapproval about the activity itself? And that a lot of people in the shooting world are increasingly worried that the latter is the case. Probably the most uh, overt example of this is uh, Julie James, who is the climate change minister in Wales, in the devolved government of Wales. And in this consultation about whether to introduce licensing for the release of all game across all of Wales, she said that she doesn't believe that the killing of a creature for leisure is something that a civilised society can get behind. Now, so what we have there is we have licensing explicitly in her opinion, licensing is not, in this case, is not for proper management. It is to disapprove of the activity on a kind of moral level and to sort of make things more difficult for people who who want to do it. 
Jonathan, your organisation, the CLA, have, have been involved in recent polling on, on the shifting rural political landscape. Can you can you tell listeners what you've discovered and also whether you get the impression that this, this covert campaign that Will outlines against field sports is starting to have an effect on voter intent? Well, I think what we've seen from successive polling undertaken by the CLA and other organisations actually is... Uh, a continued frustration at the lack of a robust and ambitious plan for the rural economy and indeed the rural way of life. And yeah, I think it's important perhaps to define the rural way of life because people talk about hunting and, and, and shooting, but in reality, what percentage of the rural population to take those pastimes? Was it 2%, 1%, probably less? What a more accurate way of looking at it, I'd say, is that the rural way of life treasures freedom a little a little bit more. And where rural people might well be concerned is that the expressions of that freedom that will vary wildly in rural areas can often be vulnerable to, let's say, politicised policy-making decisions that based on the on the whims of an urban population that neither understands nor cares for those expressions. And if you go a little bit further than that, I think you risk finding apathy about the potential of the rural economy and the communities that underpins. We know, for example, that £43 billion of additional economic a revenue could be generated if we concentrate on closing the productivity gap. The the, the, the rural economy is 19% less productive than the national average. And in most cases, there's no good reason for that. Now, no government in recent memory has had that robust and ambitious plan for the rural economy. And I think we're finding that people living in those rural communities are a bit sick of that lack of ambition because governments and political parties don't share that ambition and don't necessarily seem to understand where that potential lies. And of course, this is all taking place under a Conservative government. Yeah. And Will, you, you, yeah. you outline in your piece some of the concerns about what might happen if we have a Labour government. And do, yeah. do you kind of, I mean, do you get the impression as well that rural areas are feeling very let down by the Tories? Oh, completely, areas? completely. I mean, a lot of these uh, people I've, I've spoken to for the piece, they don't like the Tories. They might fear Labour a bit more, but they, they feel very let down by the Tories. They, 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 uh, they're naturally often quite non-political. You know, they, 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 they want to be sort of just left alone. Uh, I mean, I think Jonathan's completely right. There is, a, there is a sense that a lot of this is about freedom. You should be allowed to do these um, traditional pursuits, which people have always enjoyed, and make their livelihoods on in many cases. But, so they feel very let down um, by the Tories that a lot of this squeeze that they're feeling has has come in over the last 20 or so years, mostly under a, under a Tory government. But there is a sense that things could well get worse under Labour. I mean, some sensible, I would say, figures in the Labour Party, such as Peter Mandelson, have, have tried to, I, I quote him in my piece, saying he's trying to warn Labour against becoming sort of intolerant and finger-wagging and, and trying to impose the sort of um, way of life of city dwellers upon country people. But there are people in the shadow cabinet, such as the shadow environment secretary, who have who have explicitly said that they, they want to tighten up areas of legislation to make even trail hunting illegal, because he, there is a belief among sort of anti-hunting people that 
trail hunting is a, is a smokescreen for illegal hunting. Uh, but, you know, um, killing uh, a fox with, with hounds is already illegal. So what are you meant to do? Are you meant to make it illegal to gather with a pack of hounds because they might do something illegal? It's almost a sort of guilty till proven innocent argument on it. And, and the, the point I want to make, actually, if I, if I may, about, about a sort of disapproval on a moral level of, of the activity is uh, when the hunting ban came into, uh, was, was passed in 2004, a lot of the argument at the time made it very explicit that, that this was a ban that was based on the idea of animal cruelty, not on the idea that it's cruel to the fox, not the idea that people are enjoying the activity. That's kind of what a lot of what's shifted now is this sort of, this uh, in the politics of it all, it's a sort of making it explicit in a lot of these cases, such as Julie James and others, that they just don't like the idea that people enjoy this sort of thing. Mm. Well, you mentioned in your, your piece various groups um, Natural England, mm. the Royal Society for Protection of Birds, which, which are meant to be neutral, but is it fair yeah. to say that they, they don't seem particularly neutral? Well, a lot of people I've spoken to have come to the conclusion that they, they really don't, these groups do not have the interests of, of, of the shooting community at, at heart. This, this is the relationship particularly between the RSPB and the shooting world is, is pretty much the worst it's sort of ever been. I mean, there's official complaints lodged to the Charity Commission, there's open letters written um, about it. Fundamentally, whether, whether or not you, you, you know, you can get almost conspiratorial about this if you want to, but, but I think what you, can, you can't deny is that there is just a pretty wide ideological gulf over what conservation means. And for people in the shooting world, for gamekeepers and so on, with their traditional methods, including things like rotational heather burning to deal with the possibility of wildfires, it's, it's just not what Natural England and RSPB are interested in. They're much more interested in the ideas of rewilding and rewetting. And conservation methods of any other kind are always going to come secondary in this sort of hierarchy of how, how they want things to be done. And so there is just this complete misunderstanding, uh, I suppose, between between these these two worlds. Now, whether or not that really is a sort of um, intentional sort of anti-shooting position, I mean, that, that there, there are people who feel that way in the shooting community, but they could also just be extremely angry. <laughs> and, and Jonathan, who do you think are the groups or parties that are starting to champion rural people's way of life? Will mentions in his piece the launch of Rural Reaction, which is planning to stand 40 candidates in rural Tory seats. I mean, do you get the impression there's kind of various grassroots movements starting to take action? Yeah, although I'm a bit of a cynic when it comes to, um, I, I suppose, organisations being set up, maybe with a little bit of fanfare, and seeing the um, the impact that they may have down the line, it tends to be tends to be quite uh, quite minimal. Uh, I keep being asked whether we're going to see the end of two-party politics, and my answer has always been the same. And that's I've been asked that question every few weeks for the last twenty years, and it's never come come, come to pass. But I think if we look at the parties who are kicking around, of course, everybody's talking about the Labour Party because they're seeing the same opinion polls that I am. Well. I think the issue that Labour has got, well, it's got two issues. You refer earlier to uh, fox hunting. I, I don't think Tony Blair gave two monkeys about fox hunting either way, I have to say. I think he needed some red meat to throw to the left of his party to keep them happy, and that was the meat that he chose. Now, well, a big question is, would Keir Starmer need some meat of his own, and what will that be? And targeting a rural affairs may well be um, an easy win for him, I suppose, if you could use that term. The big issue that Labour has got, 
that it needs to correct or, or find a, a way of a working around is that rural affairs just isn't in its DNA. And, and that's not a particular criticism because parties are a product of their own unique tradition and Labour's tradition is more urban and, and, and industrial. But throughout their parliamentary party, when you look at the base of councillors uh, and, and, and activists uh, and the people who make up their formal policy-making structures, there's very little by the way of rural expertise. And, and in the absence of knowledge can breed ideology and sometimes even prejudice and and perhaps a willingness a naive willingness to listen to campaigners who might feel very strongly but might really not know what what they're talking about so i think labor party figures there's one or two members of parliament who have been very proactive daniel zeichner is the obvious one but 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 uh, labor figures need to work much harder in gaining that knowledge so that they've got a robust and a, um, I suppose, a policy platform that's based on actual fact and not on those prejudices. And it starts with getting out to the countryside. It starts with getting out and meeting landowners and farmers and land managers and people who are not looking at, you know, they're, 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 they're not reading this stuff based on political campaigns. They're living and breathing rural affairs. They're creating jobs. They're growing and rearing food for people. They're the, they're the ones who are actually planting the trees and managing the hedgerows uh, and restoring peatland and restoring natural habitats because it's only the people who actually know what they're talking about that can help you develop good policy. Yeah, I completely agree, Jonathan. The, the one thing I would say is that if, if Starmer thinks that it might be an easy win which is, I think, the phrase you used, uh, an easy win with his backbenches to kind of go after country pursuits. I think he, he may find himself very sorely mistaken. Um, the Hunting Act from 2004 is something which Tony Blair has in his memoirs said that he regretted. You know, it took up 700 hours of parliamentary debate time. A kind of incredible bandwidth went, in, went into this, a lot of time. He said in his memoirs that if he had proposed solving the pension problem by compulsory euthanasia for every fifth pensioner, he would have got less trouble <laughs> than he did for for going after hunting. So I suspect that may, may be why Lord Mandelson, when I spoke to him for the piece, was trying to urge his party to stay away from this, to, to let people have the freedom to do these pursuits, which they've done for hundreds of, of years, because it, it it will and it could end up if this if this sort of cold war over over field sports becomes a hot war like it was 20 years ago it really could end up being pretty nasty thank you jonathan for joining us today next in his piece for the spectator the journalist andrew kenny writes about the rise of julius malema and his economic freedom fighters in south africa he warns that south africans should be aware of its new rising political star and he joins the podcast alongside Ernst Rotes, author of Kill the Burr, Government Complicity in South Africa's Brutal Farm Murders. So, Andrew, can you start by telling us a little bit about Malema and, and why people should be wary of him? All right, Julius Malema, <clears throat> he began his career in the ANC Youth League and he was eventually kicked out of that. I think he was just too big for his boots. I don't think there's any particular political reason why I did so. And then he formed his own party uh, uh, 10 years ago called the Economic Freedom Fighters, which is dedicated to economic serfdom. What he wants to do is to turn the whole country into serfs, working for himself, as his hero Lenin did. He's, he's a Marxist-Leninist. 
And uh, like all African Marxist-Leninists, he drives BMWs, Mercedes, Range Rovers, wears a Breitling watch, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Spends a fortune on very expensive clothes for himself. But he's got a big folly. He's got a very good mouth, big mouth. Is a very good orator. Is a brilliant showman, brilliant showman. And he knows how to work a crowd. And his 10th anniversary filled the biggest stadium in, in South Africa, which is FNB Stadium. 100,000 people were there. Where he got the money from is a big mystery. Um, will, will our, um, our tax people will investigate him? No, they won't. He's more or less above the law now. He can do what he likes. And his party has grown from nothing. He got 6% of the votes the first time he stood, which was 2014. This is un, unheard of for a new party. Most of them are lucky if they get 1%. In the 2019 election, he got, I think it was 11%. The thing is that in this election coming next year, in, in 2024, it's very likely that the ANC for the first time will drop below 50%, in which case it will have to go into coalition. And he is the likely person that goes into coalition with. And um, he, he, he's very strong. And most of the ANC, the leader is very a weak man, Cyril Ramaphosa. He'll completely dominate him. In other words, South African policies will be FF policies in future, and that is an extremely frightening thought for the country. And Ernst, in in this rally that Andrew spoke about just just now in in Johannesburg, he of course chanted the wo- the words "kill the Boer." I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the 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 history of this this chant, this song, uh, and and its link to the brutal farm murders. Yeah, well, thank you very much, firstly, for having me. I can perhaps start by saying that I think Andrew really hit the uh, the nail uh, on the head, as we say, um, with, with that summary. I don't think the, the big risk or threat when it comes to Malema is that his party is going to win the election. I'm convinced that his game plan is to be the kingmaker. Exactly what, what Andrew said now, that if the ruling party falls below 50%, he would want to form an, a coalition with, with the ruling party. And um, the way I know him, he would probably come in and say, well, we'll form a coalition if you make me president. Um, and then probably uh, I'm, I'm guessing now or um, guessing how things might turn out or speculating. But uh, I think a reasonable or one of the reasonable outcomes of such a pro- process might be that they settle for making him deputy president. So uh, he's absolutely convinced that he's going to become the president of South Africa. He has said so many times. Um, and I think that's his game plan, to, to come in at eventually to form a coalition once the ruling party is weak and then to basically join the ruling party and, and take over the leadership in such a way. As, as, as far as the song is concerned, there are firstly, there are multiple such songs, and this has created some confusion in the past. This particular song is actually a chant, not a song. It is a, it's the best known one, Kill the Boer, Kill the Farmer. The first time it was really publicly chanted that we are aware of is 1993 by Peter Mukaba, who was president of the ANC Youth League at the time. And he's also Julius Malema's role model. According to the ANC, they chanted the song during the struggle, during the, apart- the apartheid years. I couldn't find many, you know, much sources for that, but I have no reason to doubt that. Um, then there was another th- song, and I, I think it might be useful to mention this because there was a, a court case, a big court case in 2011, 
That was a song called, it's, it's a Zulu song called Dubula Ibunu, which if you translate it means shoot the Boer. Now, the, the very short version of the history up to where we are now is this particular chant, Kill the Boer, Kill the Farmer, was declared to be hate speech by the South African Human Rights Commission in 2003. Then in 2011, the other chant, Dubula Ibunu, which Julius Malema also made popular, or Shoot the Boer, was also declared to be hate speech in 2011. Uh, Malema then continued with this chanting of actually, actually both these songs. Um, so there was a recent court case uh, last year uh, where we took him to court for continuing to chant Kill the Boer, Kill the Farmer. And the court actually found that it's not hate speech. Now, our argument was that if this is not hate speech, if targeting a group of people based on their identity or their ethnicity and then calling for them to be killed is not hate speech, then there's nothing left on the spectrum that could be hate speech. So this is going to, to uh, the Supreme Court of Appeals. Uh, we have taken this on appeal, so it will go to the Supreme Court of Appeals on, in September. And then there's one other aspect that I think is, is, is important to point out, and that is that in 2016, Julius Malema made a speech at a political rally where he made several atrocious comments, but the worst of them was when he said that, uh, and I quote, he said, we are not calling for the slaughter of white people, at least for now. That was then taken also to the Human Rights Commission in South Africa, who found in what might be described as the low point in South African politics since 1994, they found that this comment was not hate speech. And the reason why it's not hate speech is because he is black and because you have to consider the race of the person who is accused in making a finding of whether this is something is hate speech or not. So, so that is also now going on appeal. Um, so there are some legal battles ahead, but I think practically the more important thing currently is to make sure that our communities are safe and that they are, especially rural communities, that they look after their own safety in terms of community safety structures and so forth. And Andrew, in, in your piece, you, you talk a bit about the media reaction to some of what's going on and in particular in relation to the Elon Musk tweet can you can you talk a bit about that and how how racial violence is reported in South Africa well th- this is one of the most shocking things of all um Elon Musk um he, p- he picked up this kill the farmer kill the boar song chanted very very loudly in front of a crowd who lapped it up obviously agreed with it completely just to remind you, South Africa is an extremely violent, murderous country. It takes very, very little to stir people up into killing. So in, in, in 2021, there was riots in KwaZulu-Natal that killed 359 people. And it's easy to stir up a people to kill. So if, even if the song doesn't actually mean I want you to go around and kill all the farmers, the possibility of it stirring up killings is very, very large. And the sickening thing was when Elon Musk is a South African too, he picked this up and he, he, he objected to it. Kill the farmer, kill the boar. He says asking for, for what white genocide. But that, that's not true. I mean, that's an exaggeration. But nonetheless, he was terribly critical of the song being sung. And lo and behold, around the world, a whole lot of people accused him of being a racist for saying so. The New York Times, for example, said, no, there's nothing the matter with singing that song. They agreed with our South African Equality Court. It's absolutely disgraceful. And as I said in my article, here's the funny thing about um, black harm and, and white harm. When it actually comes to it, black lives matter. Black lives don't matter at all 
except if a white person is somewhere responsible for it. Otherwise, black skin all over Africa can get, 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 get slaughtered in their thousands. If it's by other blacks, nobody gives a damn. But the slightest little suggestion of whites causing the harm, and all of a sudden, black lives matter as a crime against humanity. So it's in the light of, 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 of that that, that I was uh, basing, basing, basing those remarks. Ernst, what do you what do you make of that? So, and and particularly Elon Musk's comments. So, you've already said that you think the chant does qualify as hate speech, but do you think that it was too much for him to draw the connection between it being hate speech and a push for genocide? I mean, do you think there is, and would it be too far to say that the the song has uh, led to farm murders or encouraged farm murders, even if it is hate speech? Yeah, thank you. That, that's a good question. And there are two aspects of, of that question. Um, the one, let's start with whether the song could be linked to, to farm murders. Um, and even though it is popularly denied in the media, the answer is undoubtedly yes. The, the thing with farm murders is it's a complex phenomenon and every individual case should be dealt with on its own merit. So it's very risky to try to generalize. But it certainly is true that there is a, a racial dynamic within this, this phenomenon, this crime phenomenon. Um, and there has been um, several cases where this was, was testified in court. Uh, one case was particularly with regard to this song. Uh, when it was chanted in, two, in 1993, a man named Chwene, um committed a farm murder and he testified under oath that the only reason why he murdered this person was because he was influ influenced by this song, this particular song. But he's not the only example. There have been cases of this slogan, kill the boy, kill the farmer, being written on, on the walls of farmhouses. There are photos um, on social media available, and it has been sort of in the news, uh, not widely reported, of a farm attack committed where the, the perpetrators used paint to write the words, kill the boy, kill the farmer, Viva Malema, on, on Viva, of course, long live Malema, on, on the farmhouse. There was even a case where the perpetrators, that was several years ago, used the blood of the victims to write the words, kill the boer, um, on, on the farmhouse wall. And, and there are many cases of, of victims or perpetrators testifying in court. Um, one person said he was convicted of having committed five farm murders. And he testified in court, his words were, my hatred for white people made me do it. There has been cases of, of survivors of these attacks who have, have taught, sp who spoke about what was said and done during these attacks. And in many of these cases that we could confirm, uh, political comments were made by the attackers. Um, comments about, again, like die white man, viva malema, you know, chants like that uh, made by the perpetrators during the attack. So that on the one side, there's certainly a link. Uh, and that's not to say that every single farm attack that happens is an, a direct result of this song, but there is certainly a link. On the question of genocide, it, is, it has become a, a hot topic in South Africa because we at Afri Forum who campaign um, against chants like these and against farm murders are regularly um, accused of claiming that there's a genocide in South Africa, while in fact we have never claimed that. Um, What's happening in South Africa is atrocious, but it's not a genocide. If, if you think about genocide, it's what happened in Rwanda in 1994 and, and you know, Nazi Germany. It's not people running up and down the streets with machetes and hacking everyone they can see to death. It's, it's not that. 
Um, so no, it's not a genocide. Now, the, 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 the issue currently is if you might interpret this song as a call for genocide, a literal interpretation of the lyrics um, could be read that way. And I think that is what Elon Musk said, that this is a call for genocide. Now, we would not necessarily frame it as such, but it certainly is very problematic. And the, the, the claim that this is, should not be taken literally, it's only figure of speech, it's only a metaphor, is completely bizarre, given that the reality is that people are being attacked and killed, that there is evidence of this song leading to, um, to violence and to murders. And even though this evidence exists, we still get told that we should only accept it as a metaphor. And, and, and I'll, I'll maybe close with this comment about the New York Times. Um, there's been some articles in the New York Times over the last few years, many articles about hate speech and, and so forth, where a lot of things has been claimed by, by authors of the New York Times to be hate speech, including saying white lives matter or, or using the OK signal and all of these things. The New York Times have called these things hate speech. But when someone chants kill the boy, kill the farmer, the New, the New York Times claims that it's not hate speech. It's completely bizarre. Thank you, Andrew and Ernst. And finally, could testosterone be the missing piece in HRT treatments for menopause symptoms? This is what The Spectator's producer and researcher, Lyndon Kemkaran, investigates in the magazine this week. And she joins me now alongside Dr. Sarah Ball, a GP and menopause specialist. Lyndon, so you started using testosterone in combination with your HRT treatment. Could you start by telling us a little bit about the impact that it had? Yes, I can with great relish because when I started taking this little tiny sachet of testosterone and I really started taking it in tiny quantities, I wasn't really expecting much to happen, but my goodness, it did. So within about seven or eight days, I suddenly, it was like somebody lifted a curtain away from my head, my vision, whatever, call it what you like, but I suddenly had clarity of thought, clarity of vision more purpose to my day. I mean, it was just extraordinary. And I thought it might be psychosomatic or, you know, I thought I might have thought myself into this this thing. But because I hadn't really gone into it with any great expectations, I thought, this must be the testosterone. And it just got better and better and better. And I was applying a tiny little amount every day because I just had this one slightly illegal sachet that I'd managed to obtain from a friend. And I just wanted to eke it out. But it was just extraordinary, the difference it made to my everyday life. So you say it was a legal sachet. So, so had you tried to get testosterone for treating menopause on the NHS or from your GP? Or No, because I didn't know about it. Yeah. This purely came about after a conversation with a friend over a few glasses of wine away on a weekend. And she uh, lives in the Middle East and, and she started talking about the difference that taking testosterone gel had made to her. And of course, my ears just pricked up because I thought, why... Does nobody know about this in this country? So she said she had a spare sachet. Would I like to try it? So I thought, yeah, why not? Hmm. So uh, that's how I, I came to take it. Sarah, why is testosterone suddenly the new uh, talking point in sort of discussions around menopause? What's changed? And, and do you think that there are benefits for taking it when treating menopause? Yeah, definitely. I, th I think it's changed for a few reasons, mainly because there's now a conversation about menopause, which is we're a far cry from where we were kind of five, six, seven years ago, which is great. Prescriptions for HRT, which is still the most likely thing to help as part of a holistic sort of approach to life, is prescriptions are starting to go up, which is good. But as uh, Lyndon found and other people find, you often 
find improvements in certain symptoms, but not usually the full gamut of symptoms. And so we've always known for sort of decades that people that have a hysterectomy and therefore have their ovaries removed tended to do much better if they were given testosterone as implants, but we didn't ever really used to give it to anybody else. But I think with the increased conversations around menopause, we then started to use it through the skin for women in combination with their HRT. But I think maybe, so menopause is the time that we tend to start thinking about testosterone, but actually if we're being physiologically correct, those of us born with ovaries tend to lose our testosterone usually from our early to mid thirties. So given us that most of us at that point are perhaps raising a family, juggling busy jobs, careers and things, most of us wouldn't perhaps notice that we've got a bit less energy or we're sort of uh, not multitasking with quite the vigor that we previously did. But I think most people muddle through and blame it on normal life and then get the menopause. And because the other hormones then fall away, it's like you're exposed. So I think now there's been a lot more conversation about should we be thinking about three hormones at menopause rather than the traditional two. And if it if testosterone can be an effective remedy, then, then why is it so hard to get on the NHS? Yeah, lots of reasons. So one of the main reasons is about a lack of evidence. So in medicine, everything we do has to be evidence-based. And traditionally, all academia and research about medicine was based on the male form. So testing testosterone in women has not been something that's done for very long. And as yet, we don't have any sufficiently large enough, robust enough, long enough trials looking at the benefits of testosterone for women over and above that which it's most well known for doing is improving libido and sexual function. So we do have evidence to suggest that it improves that. However, what we don't have robust enough evidence for but we have a lot of experience to suggest that it would help is things like the mental clarity, the improvement in mood, the improvement in your musculoskeletal system, your stamina with things like exercise. And there's even other benefits that we're starting to see through pattern recognition and sort of biological plausibility, like improvement in migraine, improvement in things like long COVID and other immune phenomenon. And there's even a role, a very narrow role, that some people are actually using it as a form of breast cancer treatment. So there's a huge number of things we need to actually prove that it works for, but getting funding for that and the time allowed for that is difficult. And also if I said to someone like Lyndon, would you like to be randomized to my clinical trial? Half of you in the trial will get testosterone and half of you won't. Lyndon would probably say, no, thanks. I love testosterone. I'm going to go to a private clinic and get it. So the chance of us getting the evidence is not great and it's certainly not going to happen quickly. And then as Lyndon very well pointed out in her great article, cost comes into it. And unfortunately, the NHS doesn't often recognize the longer term benefits of medical interventions. It recognizes what the cost will be tomorrow and any short term gain, but it's not going to look at the longer term benefits and keeping that woman in the workplace and keeping her functioning better in family and and keeping physically healthier so it's kind of a double whammy and then just for the kind of the the third huge obstacle 
we don't have a testosterone product in this country that's licensed for women to use. We have them for men. We don't have them for women. So the sachet that Lyndon managed to get from a friend is licensed for a man, but not for a female. Now, actually, it's the same hormone as, as a female needs, and it's actually in the right concentration, as luck would have it with, with what you got. The small print will say it's for a man and not a woman, which is going to put off all but specialists to prescribe it. So whenever I prescribe it, I'm doing it off license, which I can do as a specialist because I have sort of some extra uh, protection for doing that, but it's, it's not the norm. So most patients that I see have to source their testosterone from me on a private basis, and I get that testosterone from Australia because that's where the only place where testosterone actually is licensed for female use, and, and they make a special sort of testosterone there. There's lots of hurdles, as you can tell. Well, Lyndon, on, on the point of those hurdles, do you think that women are being let down by, by not having easier access to testosterone as part of their HRT uh, medication? Yeah, well, I do. I do feel we're being let down because I think my generation, we are probably the first wave of women who are still in the workplace. We're still leading very full lives. You know, I, I mentally, I feel no different from how I did 20, 25 years ago. And I still want to do all the things I did in my 20s and 30s. And there's no reason physically why I shouldn't be doing that. In fact, I do. Um, martial arts training being just one of them. And I feel that I'm dragging around this sort of this body that doesn't really belong to me anymore. And when I was taking the testosterone gel, I felt I'd got my old body and my mind back. And that was an amazing feeling. And I, I you know, maybe we're a selfish generation, but I want, I want some of that and I want it now. So I, I do feel we're being let down by not being able to access some proper medication. And, and no other HRT medication that you, you might have tried, did they, none of it came close to having the same effect? No, no. I mean, I felt better once I'd been on the oestrogen and progesterone, a, a marked improvement, but there was still something missing. And I'd fiddled around with the levels. You know, my GP was very good at that. But the testosterone for me personally, and it is a very personal thing, was definitely the, 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 the third leg of the, the sort of stool of hormones that holds you up as a functioning woman a functioning middle-aged woman and I feel that without that third leg of the testosterone I'm still limping along yeah and just finally Sarah I wonder are there any health risks when it comes to testosterone or perhaps also misconceptions I mean Lyndon mentions in the piece that the hormone is 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 actually naturally produced by women even though it is it is so often associated just exclusively with men so I, I wonder if you, you could speak to our listeners perhaps a little bit about both health risks and misconceptions yes of course and I guess one of the most important things to point out is that, for example, when Lyndon or I um, am using testosterone, we are using about 10% of what a man would require. So it's very different dosing. And so at the doses that us females would be using, we are just trying to um, emulate the physiological levels that we would have had in our kind of 30s and 40s. So we're just topping up a little bit. So as long as the levels are within though that normal range for a woman, then there are no safety risks that we know of. There are, bizarrely, uh, and going along with what I said before about the lack of good evidence we've got for the benefits, there's also a lack of good evidence for the safety. The longest trials that have run looking at safety are actually for only two years, which is a drop in the ocean, really, considering most women would choose to take it for much, much longer than that. But scientifically speaking and, you know, biological plausibility, there's no reason why there would be any problems. We know it doesn't upset us metabolically in terms of our heart or, or, or sugar levels or our metabolism. And 
yes, there was a few people who may get some spots or hair growth on the face if they are slightly genetically programmed to be a bit more likely to get that side effect. But there were no other side effects that we would expect to see at normal physiological doses. So it's actually, for me, as someone, as a GP that has prescribed thousands of drugs for my whole career, giving estrogen or testosterone or progesterone, which are our own natural hormones, is actually the safest thing I could ever prescribe. It's even safer than, you know, something like a, a paracetamol. So it's it's very much trying to improve awareness because as Linda said, she didn't even know it existed. So she wouldn't have known that her HRT wasn't ticking all the boxes, if you see what I mean. And I think, you know, Linda made an important point that for her, it felt like the difference between night and day. And it can feel like that. Many of my patients feel that almost miraculous change, but that isn't always the case. Some people get a few benefits, but not all. Some patients, it's rare, but some actually don't get any benefits at all. And it's because we're all different. We all have individual biology and genetics. But I do feel that all women should have the option of having it added to their HLT. Thank you, Lyndon and Sarah. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore. And I'm Lara Prendergast. And we do hope you'll join us again next week.